Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be together again on a beautiful Sabbath day. Not as beautiful as Florida, but beautiful because you're here. Good to see everybody together. We certainly miss those who aren't here, as Dean Jan prayed about. Look forward to having them back. We are 55 days from Passover. It closes in quick. I believe when we came back from the feast, we were in the 180-day range. It certainly travels by quickly. We're looking forward to that, the renewal of our covenant that we take on Passover. The last few weeks, I've been had the opportunity through work to do some traveling and a lot of driving as a matter of fact i've been i was i checked off about one, two, six more states that i hadn't been to connecticut massachusetts new hampshire maine kansas uh, missouri and each area that i drove through has its own uniqueness its own beauty um, i was i was impressed in massachusetts by the the trees and the, the beautiful forests. You think of Massachusetts as Boston and urban. Most of Massachusetts isn't urban at all. It's it's uh, lots of lots of trees and lots of, of color. New Hampshire and Maine would be. It surprised me, but I guess it would be what you would expect. It's just below the Maritimes, so it's a lot of rock. And what you, if you've ever been out to the Maritimes, what you see in the Upper Northeast is pretty similar to what you see in on the U.S. side. And the vast open skies of, of Missouri and Kansas reminded me of Colorado. With the, just the sky looks bigger. The, the land is flatter and everything just looks, looks bigger. The sunsets were beautiful. So each area has its own beauty. And I was struck, what struck me as I was doing a lot of driving it was Romans chapter 1. So if you'd like to go there with me as we begin, Romans chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 20, Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And we know as faithful followers that part of what, what we get to think on on Sabbath, Sabbath, Scripture tells us, is a memorial for creation. And as we get time to, to, to rest and relax and spend time with, with God in prayer and in meditation and perhaps walking or whatever you do on the Sabbath to spend time with God, we're touched by the beauty of his creation. And it's a stark reminder every time we, we are in his creation that we certainly, the evolutionary process can't be true. What we know and hold to be true, our God, our creator, is proven time and time again every time that we are part of his creation. 
And this window time that I spent, a lot of window time on the road with just the, the front window and nothing else, means alone time. And for those who spend time on the road, I have certainly have appreciation for what you do. I don't do it a lot, but I have appreciation for what you do. If you do driving or if you're, you're on your own in whatever that you do out, in, out in, on the road, it struck me while I was going through God's creation going through the forests of Massachusetts and then the rock of, of the upper northeast and the vast open prairies earlier this week. How some people, not followers of the way, not followers of Christ, but how some people get confused about God's presence and where he is. You've heard phrases like, God is everywhere. God is in the trees. God is in, God is in the, the creation. God is in, in the earth. God is wherever we find, God is there. And the confusion that comes along with seeing here the, what, what impact the creation should have on us, that it should remind us of God, but confused as to where God is. The term, you may not have heard of the term pantheism, but it is a, it is a word that encompasses a various religious schools of thought on who God is. Again, we, we are familiar here locally with the impact of Greek philosophy Pantheism is sort of a, an all-encompassing word for many of those philosophies that reject the idea that God is a specific being and promotes the idea that he is just everywhere, that he is in things and he is, he is just part of, part of all that we see, but that he's not a specific being. And again, you may not have heard the word pantheism, but you certainly know its effects in some of the ideas that we've studied and that, that, we, that we combat that you combat in your day-to-day uh, lives with your interactions with folks and, and trying to do what you can in professing your faith and, and some of the arguments that you come up against for people who try to explain God outside of the Bible. It's easy to explain God when you go to Scripture and to have the faith that when we see creation, we are, we are inspired that there is a God. So again, as I was driving through this beautiful countryside and each, each of its having its own beauty, I was impressed by the beauty of his creation. And then in the, all of this alone time, I was reminded in my thoughts that I wasn't alone, that God was right here with me. He wasn't in the trees, per se, and just inhabiting everywhere, but he was with me. He was with me. As followers of Christ... We are attunely aware of the fact that God is with us. We, are, we should be attunely aware to the fact of his presence, of what we know, what we have come to know as the term omnipresence. That's not a biblical word. That specific term is not biblical. At least I couldn't, I don't believe it's biblical. I couldn't find it in scripture. But it is a concept that we get from scripture of God's all-encompassing presence. What are the implications and again, window time gives you time to think. What are the implications of understanding that we live in God's presence at all times? It's one thing to know that we do. It's another thing to try and grasp the concept of what it actually means to live in God's presence at all times, that we are never truly alone. So as we continue to close in on Passover and, uh, and focus our minds and our, our efforts on preparing 
individually and collectively for this Holy Day season. What I would like to do this afternoon is take a look at what it means for us to live in the presence of God. What does it mean to be in God's presence? Let's begin in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We talked about the word pantheism and this all-encompassing word that embodies various Greek philosophies about the nature of God. Let's look here at Paul's interaction in Greece. We'll be pick it up in verse 16 to start. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, so he's in Greece, he, waited, he was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So he is here preaching Jesus Christ, understanding all that he has been taught by Christ, taking this gospel out, and he's in a city, an evil city. That is, he is surrounded by a myriad of philosophies. He was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Then he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be proclaiming foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So from their mind, what they see is just another guy with another philosophy that is in competition with the various philosophies we see, we see a few here labeled for us here, the Epicureanism, Stoicism, and all of these other babblers. And for, for them, he was just a, another competing philosophy. Drop down to verse 22, and we see where Paul, what Paul, where he drives the conversation. Then Paul stood, verse 22, in the midst of Areopagus, and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. There's one thing to be religious. There's one thing to be a follower of Christ. So he was acknowledging that he was amongst religious people. Their minds were focused on a faith of some type. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. There is only one God, and he is unknown to you. And while you claim to worship this unknown God, let me reveal who this unknown God really is. This God, who made the world and everything in it, so A, he's creator. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And we know, and we'll get to this in a little bit, that he certainly comes into creation, tabernacles with us at various points throughout history. It's how much of our understanding of the, whole, the God's plan of salvation through the annual holy days it takes effect with how God has, has come into his creation. But he doesn't need to. 
He's outside of creation. And that's here what Paul is dis- describing here for them. They are worshiping these idols in such a way that these idols are part of, part of the creation. These gods they try to worship are part of creation. He's saying the God. He's, he's referencing the unknown God so he can make a connection with them. But the God, the, the only God, is outside of this. Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and, their, and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We're all seek, they were all seeking God. When, when, when Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, there was an emptiness that being with God filled. And man has constantly since then looked to fill that void. What, what Paul is saying is he's not that far away. You just need to reach out to him. He's not that far away. Everybody's groping for him, but he's not that far away. For in him, verse 28, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. While they try to bring God into their realm, creating idols out of gold and wood and silver and all these things, Paul is saying there's this thing called divine nature that makes God who he is that we can't humanize, that we must understand is outside of the creation. Truly, verse 30, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Coming to an understanding of who God is requires a complete change in thinking, a 180-degree turn, which is what repentance means. These times of ignorance... God overlooked. God is merciful when they when they've never heard when they've never had an opportunity to hear of him. God is merciful. But now they're having an opportunity to hear him. And the call is to repentance. The call is to turn and figure out who this unknown God is. Because verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So as he now is, is, is starting to preach this gospel of the, res- the, the coming of Christ to man and then being resurrected from this and being returned to his glory as part of this over, overall concept of this, this gospel that began with understanding that he was God and he was creator existing outside of man. So coming to an understanding of who God is requires for all people a complete change in thinking because it is a divine nature that we simply don't understand humanly. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Before going any further, let's review and be reminded that God is an actual being. Christ is an actual being, that they have an actual spirit body. We've studied this several years ago now when we had a series of sermons on the book of 1 Corinthians. If you, haven't, if you haven't heard them, go back in our archives and find them. It's a, a good series. I believe all three of us covered parts of it. And the impact and the meaning of here specifically that God is an, has an actual body. 
Verse 39, we'll pick it up in verse 39, 1 Corinthians 15. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So his whole point here as he goes through this is to bring us to this concept of the resurrection. Because as we know, and we can look back, verse 12, verse verse 12 and 13, how important this concept of the resurrection is. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't risen. And everything, everything we're doing is futile. There's no point. So that's how important this resurrection is here. But in understanding the resurrection, we need to understand what he was resurrected to, and that was into a spirit body, not into some ethereal concept of being in everywhere, part of everywhere, but into an actual body. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42, the body is sown in in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a, a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And we know from our studies, and I'll remind you that this body, this Greek word for body is soma, but the difference is that one is natural, one is human, one is physical flesh, and one is spiritual. So there is such a thing as a spiritual body. So God and Christ, and when I refer to God, I'm referring to the God, the current Godhead, the Father and the Son. God is a specific being. They are specific beings. God, the the Father is a specific being. The Word, the Son, is a specific being with specific bodies. But they exist outside of creation. But understanding all that, as Paul told the Greeks, they're not far from us. How can they exist outside of creation, yet not be far from us? How can they be outside of our element, not part of who we are, not part of our little created world, but yet not be far from us? Paul caused this divine nature. How God can exist everywhere, or be everywhere, but be in a spirit body, but not be far from us, is divine nature. So let's explore this divine nature further. Let's go to Psalm 139, where it was read by Landon before the message. Psalm 139. Start looking at this divine nature. And again, what we're looking to discuss here is what it means to live in the presence of God. As faithful followers of the covenant, working towards Passover this year, recommitting ourselves, what does it mean to live in God's presence? Psalm 139, we'll pick it up in verse 7. And we see this beautiful description from David who understood, when we read these seven verses, six verses, we see David understood God's omnipresence. He understood what this being, this presence of God meant. Where can I go from your spirit? 
And where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. And that hell is grave. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Because, and again, we covered this a little bit last week, understanding that God is light when we were going through the book of John. So God himself being light, that being part of his very essence, darkness can't hide. But here, what we see, because of that light, that light that we studied last week in John, we can't flee from God. He's, he's not here, he's not part of our creation, unless, apart from those times that he puts himself into creation, comes down and becomes a part of creation, like Christ has done. We can't, we can't escape him. We can't escape him. That is this beautiful description of, of God's, God's presence. But what are its implications? It's nice to know... It's, it's inspiring to read this, that we can't, God is everywhere. We can't, we can't get away from him. Where can I go from your spirit? If I'm here, you're there. If I go over here, you're there. What are its implications? Let's go back to verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and by lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. So David started to understand what it meant, what the implications to him were. That God knew when he had a thought, God would know what he was thinking. When he thought he was all by himself, and whether he did something good for God or slipped, God knew. And he was acquainted with his actions. He was acquainted with his ways. He knew who David was. He was acquainted with all my ways. All that David was, God knew. Let's go to Jeremiah 23. Continue to look at this. These implications of God's divine nature. Jeremiah 23. We'll begin in verse 23, cutting into the middle of this, but the context here is in the midst of persecution and false prophets from within the family of Judah. That God keeps his eye on his people. So despite there being false prophets leading these people astray from within, in addition to all that they were battling from without, verse 23, God says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? 
I have heard what the prophets have said who, pro- who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. And we see here God saying, I will not forget my people. I will not forget my people. And we see what, we're, what we are being surrounded by. For those of you on the Slack channel, there was something posted yesterday about Google. And you can ask Google things, as we know. And Google absolutely does, do not recognize the name Jesus Christ. They said, Google, tell me about Buddha. And he said about Buddha. Tell me about, I don't, I don't remember what they were. But there was a, a, some listed items. Tell me about New Age. And Google could, could, would recall what New Age was. Tell me about Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I don't recognize that. Uh, tell me about Jesus. Uh, I, I don't recognize what you're talking about. That's what we're up against. So society built on the foundations of Jesus Christ, on the Bible, from within here, this is what we're up against. But God promises us, he will not forget us. He promises us that as we live in his presence, he will keep an eye on us. As we go through the book of Revelation in our Wednesday Bible studies, we are becoming more in tune with the peace and calm that should envelop God's people during periods of trial and strife. We're not not to say we're not going to go through them, but what we have is we have calm and peace, knowing that God is in charge. That God has complete control over all the actions of the adversary. And we read that in the book of Revelation where they were, he was granted power. Often we focus on the power he was granted when what we need to focus on is that he was granted power. And he only operates under the authority of God as far as God will allow him to operate. Hebrews 13 Let's go to Hebrews 13. Here Paul quotes, as he does throughout his letter to the Hebrews, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And we've studied this also in times a few years back, the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Again, focusing, on, focusing us on what we need, not what we want. Controlling our desires, controlling our lusts. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we, understanding that, that one Scripture, then, that's, that's not something Paul wrote of himself here in, in, in the, during the time that he wrote Hebrews. That comes all the way back from the book of Deuteronomy, written back in the Torah, that God promises he will never leave or forsake his people. His people may leave or forsake him, as we've seen throughout history, but God doesn't leave or forsake his people. And knowing that, having that confidence, we may boldly say, as Paul continues, the Lord is my helper. He's not, he's not against me. 
if I go through periods of trial and sickness as seems to have been befallen our congregation, that's not God punishing us. He is my helper. I will not fear what man can do. I'm on the Lord's side. He will help. And I don't need to fear what is going on. I don't need to fear that it is becoming... Right now, Google does not recognize the name Jesus Christ. How soon before it becomes a crime to say the name of Jesus Christ? We're now, this week, we've, we are changing the wording of our, of our anthems. How many more things are going to change to make people comfortable with things? This assurance of living under God's watchful eye while we are going through trials brings us the calm and the resolve to persevere. Throughout Scripture, God's people are, are admonished to persevere. It is much easier to persevere with calmness and resolve rather than fear and anxiety. And finding ways to serve him through this. We talked about that last week. Work for the night is coming. We'll talk a little bit about more of that next week, as, as promised, during after after-sermon discussion. But living under God's watchful eye brings us peace and calm. That is this divine nature that Paul was talking about to the Greeks to, to get people to understand who this God was. And he was outside of creation. Sometimes, as part of the gospel message, he would insert himself into creation. But he sits outside of creation as a spirit being with a spirit body. Let's go to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, as we change focus just a little bit here. We talked about the implications of understanding this divine nature. Let's now focus on ourselves and see how this divine nature has implications for us individually. How does it affect me as a follower of God, as a follower of the way? Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees everything. The ability to see all that is going on, God's omniscience, or his ability to see all, much more than a mom who has eyes in the back of her head. He can see all. It should make us mindful of how we behave when no one is watching. When I was on the road for two and a half weeks by myself, I was never by myself. God was right there keeping tabs. The ability to see all that is going on has deep implications for us as followers of God. Let's go to Job 34. And whenever we turn to Job, as we've studied as well over the years, it is important to realize who is speaking and when in this long diatribe. Because not everything that is in the book of Job is truth. We know that some of it was Eastern philosophy, human philosophy from some of Job's friends. But Job 34 is from Elihu, the youngest friend who waited until everyone else was done 
And then God used him to get to Job, as we know. So this is truth about God because it's Elihu Elihu spoke truth. He wasn't speaking human philosophy. So this is Elihu speaking. Let's look at verse 21. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. God sees everything, and there's no place we can hide. Elihu understood it. He told Job. And we see, we've seen Jeremiah understood it. We see Paul understood it. This is something that God's people come to understand, that God, God is omnipresent and he is omniscient. He sees everything, and he can be everywhere in that, in that sense. Let's go to Luke 22. Seeing, understanding that nothing misses God's eye has an impact on our action and who we are and what we do. Let's go to Luke 22 and see an example of, of this. As we turn there, let's consider the chaotic scene, the chaos that surrounded the crucifixion, all the people that were gathered and were part of it and were mocking and scourging. This was not just, this was not a, a how we would deem, I don't think, in today's movies, someone being sent to be executed. And it's all done systematically and timely at the drop of the, of the clock. And then a button gets pushed and he gets to say something and it's all done nice and timely. The scene here is a little more chaotic than that. Having arrested him, verse 54 of Luke 22. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said of him, You're also part of that group, aren't you? And Peter said, I am not. I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confident, confidently affirmed. So this is a third person who said, you know what? He absolutely is. Surely, I am sure, this man was with him. For he is a Galilean. I've seen him around. He's part of his inner circle. When this man Jesus was walking and preaching from place to place, I've seen him everywhere. But Peter said, I don't know what you're saying. You have no idea what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That has always been, and I'm sure I've covered this before, it's, it's always been one of the most chilling verses to me in Scripture. That while Peter is protecting himself, and you know what, I'm, there's no one here. My, my 11 friends aren't even here to, to see that I'm lying about this. I'm just by myself. Peter caught Christ's eye. Christ caught Peter's eye. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Nothing escapes the eyes of our God. Nothing. 
and that has an impact on our behavior. Living in God's presence means we are never really alone. We are never really alone. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 12. We read the 139th Psalm and saw David's deep understanding of God's presence. Not only in descriptive fashion, but all that it meant to him. Not just the the magnificence of how God's presence can be everywhere and nothing misses him, but how that affects the individual and how David described that throughout that psalm. How could he write such a rich psalm about God's presence? Because he learned the hard way. He learned the hard way. He learned, in some fashions, the easy way too. God was with him. God, through Jonathan, helped protect him. But let's go back and see this story here that we're familiar with, with Nathan. We'll pick it up in verse 5. We know Nathan came to see David, presented him with this parable. And David's anger in verse 5 was greatly aroused against the man in this parable. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So God is reminding David here that he knows, he knows the value of God's presence in his life. He has seen it from a positive side. He has seen all that God has given him. But then David is reminded how, how truly God sees everything. When he thought he was alone, when he thought he had sent everybody off, else off to war, and he could succumb to this pressure and these temptations, he was never alone. Look at the detail that Nathan covers, and Nathan wasn't there. Look at the detail he covers. Verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David thought he was alone when he did this. And Nathan was able to provide him with pretty grim detail that he knew he wasn't alone. That's how he could know that God was always there, that nothing escapes the sight of God, that God's presence, while magnificent and protective for us when we are right and when we are on the right path, when we are going through persecution and trial and sickness, we aren't alone. God is right there with us. When we are faced with temptation, God is also there with us. He's there. He knows, and nothing escapes 
his attention. So as we work towards Passover, it is important, as we do every year, as part of the self-examination process, that we take a look in the mirror and work with God towards making sure we are right with him, making sure that nothing has escaped our attention that we need to fix with God. Are there any unresolved issues? Are there any habits? Are there any sins? Are there any mistakes? Anything in our lives that we need to flush out with God to make sure we are right heading into Passover? He knows what they are. Do we? Do we know what they are? We need to take time to do that as followers, of the, as keepers of the covenant. Let's go to Matthew 18. Let's go to Matthew 18. We often go to this scripture when validating the size of small groups to remind ourselves that Christ is present even in the smallest of groups. That if we are sick, let's take today's example of Alex and Johanna and they're at home, Christ is there with them. When we are by ourselves during the week with our mate or we get together with a, a, another member for coffee or whatever it is, Christ is there with us. When we consider Feast of Tabernacles that have multiple thousands of people or Feast of Tabernacles that has 25, Christ is there and part of that. It has implications on our interactions too. Understanding God's presence doesn't just have implications on our actions. It has implications on our interactions. So let's read this scripture. This is the one we go to. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That's comforting. That's good to know that when we get together with members of the body, Christ is there with us. It also what helps us understand what a Christ-like marriage is. That it is not two but three. That is a, it is a it is a covenant between three, between Christ, the husband, and the wife, that a godly marriage is a marriage of three. Again, helping us prepare for our marriage as the body of Christ. But let's consider this, this verse in context and in the light of this message and go back to verse 15 because it has everything to do with conflict within the body. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It is not just validating the fact that Christ is present in small groups. It tells us that his presence has an impact on our interaction. His presence has an impact on how we deal with each other. Let's go to Genesis 3. We are introduced to this concept of God's 
omnipresence from the very beginning of our story, of our history here in Genesis. God's presence here is shown to us and it involves the interaction between people. When both parties felt they were the only ones in the know. And we see here what God shows us about his presence. Genesis 3. We know the, the, we've studied in detail just before the feast last year some of this, this impact of understanding how Eve was deceived, but Adam turned his back on God. And we'll pick this up here in verse 7. After their actions, the eyes, of, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They knew something had changed. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. They thought that all they had to do was go hide somewhere, and God couldn't see them. God wouldn't have seen them. He wasn't there with them in in presence the way he was when he taught them, so there's no way God could know. The Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They went and hid themselves from God, thinking that God simply wouldn't know. We see this repeated in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, the story of their two sons. When Cain became upset with God's reaction to his offering and then took out his anger on his brother by killing him. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, after Cain had killed Abel, God said to him, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Nothing escapes the vision of God. While Cain thought he could have just ended Abel's life quietly, no one would know. Maybe he could say, I haven't, I haven't seen him. I have no idea where, I have no idea, mom and dad. I have no idea, God, where he is. I haven't seen him in a long time. It escapes our attention. Adam and Eve wouldn't have known, but it doesn't escape God's. Because nothing misses God's attention. Nothing misses God's attention. So God's presence has an impact on us. It is a powerful reminder of his majesty. It brings us peace and calm and resolve as we work through trials, as we work through, through issues, through persecution, through health issues. It brings us peace and calm and resolve. It also has an impact on keeping us on the straight and narrow, understanding we're never alone. And it also has an impact on our interaction. Let's tie this back to Passover so we can continue working towards Passover and preparing ourselves for that. Let's go to John 14. John 14.
Christ here is after the Passover service, the same evening. He is talking to his disciples here now about his departure and getting them ready for him leaving and the events that will precede his departure being his death and crucifixion. Verse 15 of chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that this helper may abide with you forever. This helper that is called the Spirit of Truth, that the world cannot receive. It's not just given out to anyone, because it neither knows God, or, and doesn't, and nor, neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God will be in us. Christ will be in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The spirit that unites us, the spirit that makes us part of his body, is partly how God and Christ dwell with us. This is how God dwells with us. How we are not alone because of the presence of this Holy Spirit that we receive upon baptism. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. When I leave and you become part of this covenant and you commit to this way of life, you will receive this Holy Spirit and it will work with you. It will help you. It will teach you and it will help you remember all these things that I taught you so that it will be like I'm still here, but I'm not. But I'm here in, in, in spirit form, in, in, inside of you through this power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16. Again, same part, same conversation. Verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Wouldn't you want Christ to just stay? Wouldn't it be better for Christ to just stay? But he said, I need to go. Why does he need to go? For if I don't go away, that helper, this Holy Spirit, will not come to you. For if I depart, I will send it to you. When it has come, it will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So he has promised to leave us with a piece of himself. This spirit essence, part of what makes him who he is. What makes the Father who he is. Just a portion to combine with our human spirit to help change us, to help teach us, to help mold us after his, after his likeness, to, help give, to make us in the mind of Christ. And it is interesting that at this point in time, he couldn't stay. 
because there was no need to give the Holy Spirit. Christ was there, and it was, but it was an external presence. For them to understand the impact of what the Holy Spirit means, Christ had to leave so that he could then send, a, each, send his people the Holy Spirit and to become part of them. Christ's presence in us through the power of the Spirit of God is part of the glorification process. We've covered that back in Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. We don't need to turn there, but how the glorification process, that we've been justified through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and now we are in this life going through the glorification process that, so that we are then born into the family of God at the resurrection. Once we repent, once we accept the blood of Christ for our sins, we then receive his spirit. We know this. And we become members of one another. We don't just become members. We don't just have the Holy Spirit in us. We become members of one another, part of this greater body, the same body of Jesus Christ. Knowing this, knowing this, that not only is God ever present in our lives, but we are in the body of Christ. And as we've been reminded in these recent weeks, connected to one another, connected to one another. So how we prepare to commemorate this Passover, every Passover, is of utmost importance. It is of utmost importance, and let's see why. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. As we prepare our minds, examining ourselves to take the bread, to take the wine at Passover, let us remind ourselves of these important instructions of God before Passover. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and body, the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So part of this process of self-examination helps protect us and keep us on the straight and narrow, keep us part of the covenant people of God so that we don't end up part of the condemned group that he talks about here at the end of verse 32. But as we do this, we must make sure as this God's presence is there in our interaction that we are we individually are right with each other, that we are right with each other, with the rest of the body of God's people, that there are no, we've, we've taken the, the imagery of the body over the last number of weeks, and we've really broken that down. We must make sure, if I can take it one more step further, that there are no infections in the joints that we occupy, that we are in a state of edifying the body, not infecting the body. We just need to make sure that we are edifying and not infecting, that we are part of that whatever joints we occupy, that they're healthy joints and don't need attention. 
because the consequences of taking Passover in an unworthy manner are ominous. We see here, the version that I'm reading, it says we drink or need judgment to ourselves if we fail to do that. If you have a King James Version, it uses the more ominous word, damnation. That word that we read is krima, krima. And if we remember what we studied, that is the noun form of the verb krino that we have studied multiple times about what it means to judge. Whether we self-examine, whether we discern, or whether that type of judgment is a, a final verdict or a condemnation. And this, this drinking damnation or drinking judgment and eating judgment upon to ourselves comes, it comes from the same word, and it means judgment or condemnation, as we see, or verdict or sentence. We must make sure that the joints that we occupy are not infectious joints that have something wrong with them, that are not edifying the body, but, are, but need attention. And we, can, we consider, if anyone has ever had an infection, Let's consider an infection of the toe. We have an infection of the toe. The toe is sore. We limp. We might, it might adjust how we walk. It doesn't affect the left hand. It doesn't affect my elbow. It doesn't affect my shoulder. But it affects my head. My head is always paying attention to this. My head's not paying attention to the elbow. It's fine. But if there's an infection, the head, project this over to Christ being the head of his body, is his attention is focused on this toe because there's an infection and it needs to be, it needs to be healed. It needs to be, become part, it needs to become an edifying joint, not an infected joint. This is all part and parcel of what it means to just make sure, just make sure we are ready for Passover to take it in a worthy manner. He warns us of eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. And what we see here, what we see here We then individually, verse 32, for when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. If we don't do that, the implication is, it is now, we are now not part of the body. We be, this now becomes an individual thing where we become separate from the body and it now becomes individualized. Be courageous enough and love the body enough to reach out and make sure we repair any breaches in his body before Passover. Not just this year, every year. Make sure that before you take the bread and the wine, breaches are repaired, and the joints that you occupy are healthy, edifying joints. Remember the Lord's Prayer and the implications of an unforgiving heart. Each of us needs to consider our own lives before Passover. and We need to make sure We need to make sure that the joints that we occupy are healthy, edifying joints. Let's go to Revelation 21 to remind ourselves as we conclude why this is so important. Our presence, when this time comes, is at stake. We want to be here. We have been through, over the course of time that you have committed your life to God, You have been through a lot, a lot of ups and downs, persecution, health issues, whatever it is that makes you who you are today. 
we have all been individually and collectively through a lot. Our presence here, we want, we want to be here. I saw a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. We are coming to the point in time when God will always... God, it won't just be an ethereal concept that, uh, that God is with us because we know it and we get it and we understand it because we have the Holy Spirit within us. We will be in the very presence of God, in his form, on his turf, in his way. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Be courageous enough to love the body of Christ, to make sure we take this Passover worthily, worthily. How many of you remember the movie The Truman Show? The Truman Show was a movie about this character named Truman Burbank. And he was a man, if you recall seeing this movie, living out his life unknowingly in a TV show. And this TV show was the brainchild of this director who oversaw the production of this show from outside this big domed, this big domed area. And this big domed area represented this city that Truman lived in. And to not to get into too much detail, but they, they had adopted him from birth, this corporation, and they made him part of this TV show, and they raised him. And everybody in his life was an actor, and they were fed these lines. And his life, was a, his life was a TV show. And it was the brainchild of this egomaniacal director who wanted to play with his life and see what it would be to, to create an existence and operate it from the outside. And everything that touched his life, it was all part and parcel of this, this, this egomaniacal director's brain, brainchild. All the people in his life were actors. Everything was scripted. The God we serve didn't create our world as part of a play his egomaniacal pleasure. He created this world with us as its centerpiece, ultimately to share his love and glory. That is the story of this gospel that we share. As spiritual beings, this God exists outside of us. He's got this creation, this physical realm that he created, that he and his son live apart from, that from time to time they inject themselves into, tabernacling with us at various points throughout history, which we see in our Bibles, with a plan to redeem us through the story of the holy days, fully grasping how God interacts with us as members of his body, guides our behavior, knowing that it keeps us calm and it keeps us resolved in times of trouble, knowing that we have a reason to shun temptation when we're on our own, when behavior, opportunities, project themselves upon us and knowing that it affects how we interact with each other because we are always, always, always living in his presence. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. 
To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.